Welcome back to I Loved This Conversation. I'm so happy you're here. I'm Alex Salzberg. I'm an animator, a writer, and more and more of a podcaster every day, I guess. I'm loving that. This is a podcast where I have conversations with other creative people about what is going on in their creative lives. It's really a podcast that's like having a conversation with a friend at a coffee shop. It could be an old friend or a new friend, someone you're just getting to know. But one of those conversations where you leave feeling more inspired and less alone. So I'm hoping this episode and all the others can inspire you and keep you company on your drive, on your walk, while you're drawing, writing. It's kind of hard to listen to podcasts while writing, but I don't know. Try it. Let me know how it goes. Today's episode is with Sarah Lynn Rule, a children's book author and illustrator based in Boston. We'll talk about it at the start of the episode, but I met Sarah at Animatic Boston, which was a monthly meetup, artist talk event that I co-founded and helped run. The time when I met Sarah, when I was running Animatic Boston, was creatively, career-wise, I think at times personally too, sort of chaotic and uncertain certain. And yet, in talking about it with Sarah and remembering that time, I felt really nostalgic for it. I felt really nostalgic for a time when a bunch of us were working on this thing that brought people together while I was also doing freelance work and I was starting to teach and I was doing all these projects and building my freelance career that turned into the business I do now. And I don't know, maybe this is like a cliche thought, but I am someone who, to a fault, I think, is always waiting for things to calm down and become more certain. I'm always doing that thing of like, well, when this project's finally over, or things will slow down, things will calm down. But then when I think about the times that I'm most nostalgic for, they're often times that are pretty busy and chaotic and, frankly, uncertain career-wise, creatively, all of that. And I'm not sure I've had many slower times in my life, but I'm not as nostalgic for those times. And so if you've been following along, I've been talking about how peaceful it is to be working and living day to day at an empty summer camp uh, in the winter in Connecticut. We're here for my wife's work. And that's true. It has been peaceful. But there's also a lot of chaotic stuff and uncertainty in this time. I'm driving back and forth to Boston a lot because I'm still teaching in Boston. I'm recording a lot of podcast episodes in Boston. The project I'm working on in Connecticut is busy and a lot of meetings and a lot of work and a lot of decisions. And even though it's contained to my computer, it's all very chaotic. And having this realization after talking to Sarah really helped me feel more excited about this time, about the present, because I started thinking, how am I going to look back on this time? Because I think when I look back on this time, I'm going to think about it as a time when I was building this new exciting project, this podcast, and in doing so, meeting new people, reconnecting with people, having amazing conversations with my friends. I'm going to remember it as a time when I was working on a really exciting project. I'm going to remember it as a time when I got to experience a different living situation in kind of a more rural area. And I'm not going to remember waiting for things to slow down. So speaking of driving back and forth, I recorded this chat with Sarah at CCTV in Cambridge. And As I hinted at, it was so fun to catch up with someone that I used to see once a month almost. And this was a real reconnecting episode, but also was probably the longest conversation I'd ever had with Sarah. So we learned a lot about each other. 
we learned that we have a lot in common and we just had a lot of fun. And I think that really comes through in this conversation. I think you'll have fun listening to us reconnect. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about being caught in the cycle of making work and finding work. We talk about allowing ourselves to be more playful as we make our art. We talk about trying and sometimes failing to plan our time, to have our time management be perfect. And then Sarah also gives an amazing and really honest look at the circumstances around her going from someone who saw art as an unstable career to taking a leap and going to grad school and becoming a professional artist. So let's meet our guest and hear her connection to me. My name is Sarah Lynn Rule, and I know Alex from Animatic Boston, which I used to go to all the time in Somerville. Animatic Boston was an animation uh, artist talk event group that I ran for many years. And yeah, I remember you were like someone who came almost every month. You were like one of the regulars, which I always like, and a former guest speaker as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, after after a while, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you show up enough, I'll eventually <laughs> interview you on stage. I had been doing like an online animation program at the time, which was like way before people were doing online things. Yeah. And so <laughs> I was- Before it was cool slash right. required. <laughs> So I was dying to like find a way to connect with other people in the Boston area because my school was out in San Francisco and I didn't know anybody who was doing animation, so. Well, I'm gonna open with a big question. Sarah, what is something you're currently going through in your creative life? Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> that's trying. what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been doing, well, I've been doing some line work and listening and it's been so great and I've been hearing all these wonderful answers that people have. I thought I would be more prepared and now I'm not really prepared. But yeah, I guess just what I'm working on right now is, I feel like I'm always trying to figure out what I do. <laughs> <laughs> what I do is I'm a picture book author and illustrator and at any given time, it's ideal if I have some projects under contract, which I do right now. Mm -hmm. So like I'm working on editing, I'm working on the final art, I have some follow-up stuff I need to do and I have another contract too. But if I'd like to make a living next year, I need to have dummies, like rough versions of books that are ready to go out on submission to publishers now so that they can be rejected a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe someday accepted by a publisher. So there's sort of always this, okay, what should I focus on next? How should I spend my time? And what projects is it worthy for me to spend my time on? And also at the same time, thinking of projects in that way, I feel like makes them less fun. So then like trying to forget about all that and just try to... <laughs> Figure out what I'm right. having more fun with. So. And so I imagine the hope is then that like you have this steady cycle. The hope is there's yeah. a steady cycle where like you finish one book and then you, you're ready to start another. Does it ever work out that perfectly? It's always been manageable. I've, I've actually only been doing this since like 2015. Like I, gra I graduated from animation school. That was when like all those animation companies in Boston closed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I just got this master's degree and I need to do something with it. So I sort of pivoted to making picture books at that time. So I really only started in like 2015 and my first book came out in 2018, which is actually a great time span. I was very lucky to get that book published. I feel like there's been some lapses. Right now it's probably like my luckiest thing in terms of like having some projects lined up. So, okay. Because um, the book I'm working on now is for Harper and it's like an early reader graphic novel. Oh, cool. It's about an argument between a hammer and a nail. So like I have that book that I'm working on now for the final stuff. And then when I'm done with it, I actually have another book under contract with them that I haven't written yet. So no pressure. <laughs> so this is something I relate to a little, this cycle, because I'm, I'm a freelancer. So like I'm yeah. always finishing a project and then trying to line up the next one because it's very scary to have a gap in between. Yes. Um, and something that I struggle with, you said the phrase, figure out what I'm doing, or I think that was your phrase, or yeah. like, sometimes I find that because of that cycle, 
I never get a chance to like step out of the cycle and be like, do I want to be in this cycle? (laughs) So I don't know if you relate to any of that. At every step of the cycle that I'm in, I'm always like, I wish I was in this other part of the cycle. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I super relate to that. (laughs) One thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is what it looks like when I'm working. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like I should be really productive. Um, I think before you and I were talking about the Yiddish word spilkes. I feel like I'm always just full of this like nervous energy, (laughs) like neurotic (laughs) Slightly, just slightly neurotic. So I feel like when I think about work and like what I should be doing, I feel like I should be sitting in front of a computer and just like looking like I'm working. I'm kind of pretend typing right now. But that's not really what the nature of my work usually is. Like there's some of that for sure. Like there's a lot of like, my mom calls it infrastructure, like all this stuff that you have to do in order for the rest of it to not fall down. So not just like work-related stuff, Mm -hmm. but also like getting the kids to the doctor's appointment, like all of those pieces. It all kind of mixes together at a certain point. It does, especially when you work from home. (laughs) Yep, yep. And you don't have a boss and you're just trying to figure out like how your day is supposed to look. And so I've been thinking about just that concept of what does it look like when I'm working and nobody's watching me, nobody's (laughs) standing over me and being like, you have to look like you're working. But I'm doing that to myself a lot of the time. And recently I started renting a new studio space Mm. and it's a friend of mine um, goes to a church where they had this like big open room that has huge stained glass window that isn't even religious it's all like fruits and flowers oh and cool and so i've been going there and it's been so quiet and i've been allowing myself to just mess around a little bit more which i think has been really good and, I, and i've been using this word plork p-l-o-r-k plork. it's from sister carita kent do you know she is she was a no. nun who was an artist she did like the love stamp that was out like a long time ago like in the 70s and 80s i think she was active okay There's i recognize a- the love stamp i can picture yeah. that she did many other things yeah but she also came up with this concept of plork. I read about it in a children's book, um, a biography <laughs> of her, where it's sort of a combination of play and work and the concept of just being like, you know, nothing's a mistake. There's no fail. There's no win. There's only make kind of thing. So instead of being like, I should play and be an artist or I should work and like be a functional member of society. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I've been trying to think about plork. So it's, mm-hmm. it sounds like you have some ingrained feelings, even just from how you phrase that, that <laughs> the work is functional and the art is. And I'm right there with you. Like that's in in me also. But like, where do you think that comes from? Like the, the you that's watching you work? Yeah. Who is that? I think I, my dad wanted to be an artist like an illustrator mm-hmm. but he wasn't able to finish school because I have five brothers from my dad's first marriage and he just had to go work and I think when I was growing up my parents were always like well art is nice but you'll be a starving artist and I feel like the mm. term starving artist is just like pounded into my head and yeah. so I went to undergraduate for like, bio- like biology organism level biology I kind of was all over the place I'm just interested in a lot of different things yeah but I had this kind of science focus and then I did more like nonprofity stuff and admin type stuff because it just felt like, well, that's the sort of thing I should be doing that sort of like looks like work. It's paid salaried job. You right. Know? You know, I think also like being a mom, I want to like as a working mom, like make a living with this kind of work. And it's really tenuous. Growing up with this idea of art as like as unstable and the starving artist idea. And then you made this shift at some point in your adulthood to getting an MFA in mm-hmm. animation, which which I can tell you is not always known for its um its stability in <laughs> a lot of ways. Was that a sudden thing or what led up to that if it wasn't sudden? I think I was the kind of person who like drew when I was younger a lot and then I stopped. 
mm. for a long time. Like I didn't, I did some classes in college, but like I never felt like I was really good enough. And I stopped for a long time. And when I made the decision to go back for the MFA, I had been working in like nonprofit administration for a long time, sort of like adjacent to things that I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. But the work, the daily work that I was doing was not that interesting to me. I ran the internship program at the Museum of Science here in Boston. My favorite thing about it was like hearing about all the amazing projects that the interns would be working right. on. Right. You were like always a bridesmaid, never right. a bride or whatever. I wish there was a better phrase I yeah, could have thought no, of there, but, really, but yeah. Yeah, but it's, I was like, but, and also like, but like none of those things were like anything I really could like dive into because mm -hmm. it wasn't really my specialty. And I always had wanted to draw my, you know, my dad had wanted to be an artist and he also had stopped drawing and it sort of felt like, um, yeah, I don't know. I actually had like a personal thing um, happened a couple of years before I decided to make the decision where I, um, we had, my first child was stillborn. Um, his name was Ben. And so it was very sudden and like, they don't really understand why, but it was um, just such a shock and sort of just gave me this like feeling of like, just sort of like you can do everything right. And like, you just don't know how things are going to go. Like you don't get to control everything. Right, and right. like, it's, yeah. So I think just in thinking about him and then, um, and then my older daughter was born a year later, and she was born super early. Like she was in the hospital for um, three months, and like that was pretty traumatic too. I thought the same thing was going to happen, but luckily, mm -hmm. she made it. And she's fine. She's thirteen now, and she's oh, wow. she's great. And so I think I was just feeling like you know waiting until like I retired or something to do art like wasn't yeah. something that I maybe. Like, I just didn't know if I had that option. Like, I just, it sort of, like, struck me as, like, oh, like, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I don't get to choose when it is. Yeah, and, like, yeah. and if I'm going to live, then I probably should try to do some things that I enjoy more on a daily basis. And if this stuff is calling me in some way, then I should try to listen to it and try to do something. Yeah. Wow. As you had that realization, what called you to animation. So not only drawing, but draw, drawing thousands of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, one thing I liked about animation was the the illusion of life. You know, when you see a pencil test, especially, like, I feel like there's just so much, you know, even if it's drawn, like, on a computer, yeah, which is what I did. And I actually haven't animated for a really long time. But I think there's something really exciting when, like, it's just a static drawing, and then suddenly, like, you see it has a spark of life, and then it comes to life. Yeah. And there's this, that illusion of life that is there. And, like, I don't know if it's, like, some sense of control. <laughs> <laughs> trying to have in the universe. I think I think there was that element and there was also the element of like I knew I wanted to draw and I needed a studio art based program and I wanted a master's degree just because I figured then if I wanted to teach I would have a master's degree. So and I figured even if I wanted to go into illustration, if I learned how to do animation, then I'd get a lot more practice drawing. So that's why. And, yeah. and I also thought that there were more jobs. There were more jobs. There were, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I when mean. I started the program. <laughs> There were more jobs. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to, I just, I share your love of pencil tests. Like, that's my favorite part of all animation. My yeah. own, other people's. For anyone listening who doesn't know, a pencil test is the sketch drawing that eventually becomes inked and colored. There's so, there's so much life in them, arguably more than the final in some ways, just because of the nature of the lines. There's so much like volume to it. And like spontaneity. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's hard to maintain that in the final drawing. It really is. If it's a cleaned up drawing. You kind of hinted at this. You graduated with an, an MFA mm -hmm. and um, the Boston job market for that had sort of disappeared at the time you graduated. I couldn't move, you know, to another place where there might be more jobs. Right. My parents had moved from Brooklyn to help me take care of my kids. My in-laws live two towns over from us. Everybody's here. We 
just, we can't move. What was your path to picture books? Well, I was reading a lot of picture books to my kids, and I was realizing that there were a lot of transferable skills. <laughs> then I felt like when I was reading some of my favorite picture books that I was reading to my kids, I was realizing that they were kind of like short films. You're sort of like in this space and in this time, and I've always loved reading. So I just was like, well, I'll just throw together a dummy. I actually used some, I started with some sort of two-page flip books that I had made as a project while I was in my master's program for a class that was just talking about like color theory and stuff. You called it a dummy, which is like sort of a rough draft, right? Or sort of a, a pitch? Yeah, like a mock-up. But yeah. I used those and they were just like animals that were like sad and then they were happy. Like, And then I actually turned that into like a lift the flap board book, cool. um, which became Pet the Pets, one of the first books that I sold. I had interned at Fable Vision Animation Studio with, mm. um, and they were lovely. And then somebody that I worked with at Fable Vision was going to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators conference while I was there. And I really wanted to go, but I was like, I had a baby and a four-year-old and like, <laughs> I was interning. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, I a can't go. Yeah. On, yeah. But then the following year, I was like, well, there's no work. So I think going to the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators conference was really good just because they have so many like workshops and classes and like everybody's very supportive. It's a really nice, supportive industry. And they have things where you can meet with agents and you can meet with art directors and editors and stuff. So I, I had some dummies that I brought with me and I showed them to some people. They have a portfolio review and through them, I found some critique groups. So I started meeting regularly with other people who were also trying to illustrate picture books. And that was really nice. I did that for a number of years. I, I was with them. And then I found a writing group through them too. I started trying to volunteer at conferences so that I could oh, wow. go for free because <laughs> they're so expensive. And then I realized that the thing you need to do if... You don't have to do this, but it, it makes your life a lot easier if you can get a literary agent or an illustration yeah. agent, depending on what kind of work you want to do. Initially, I thought I would just illustrate other people's books. And mm -hmm. I was like, while I was like waiting for them to, you know, <laughs> bang down my door, <laughs> I was like, I guess I'll write my own story. Like, yeah, while I'm waiting for all these jobs. And still to this day, like all of my books, I've written and illustrated all of them. I haven't yet illustrated somebody else's work, mm. but I like doing that. I like sort of coming up with just some kind of like weird amorphous pencil test of an idea, you know, and then sort of bringing it through. So Pet the Pets was the first book that sold, but The Breaking News was the first book that was published. Mm -hmm. And that book, I got that idea from, ugh, from, um, <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say that is because it's a story about like when like really terrible things happen in the news yeah. and like sort of how one little girl like notices that her grownups, her parents are like falling apart and tries to like do things to help make things better. And it was inspired by so many terrible <laughs> things that happened in our world, like obviously September 11th. Yeah, like, yeah. And um, while I was pregnant with my second daughter, there was the marathon bombings here mm -hmm. in Boston. Luckily, my family was fine, but my father-in-law was running it and my husband and his brothers were like at the finish line. Oh, God. So like, and then I was dropping off my older daughter at this French after-school program because my husband's family's from France. And I started getting like a slew of text messages from our family in France mm. when there was the Bataclan bombing. It was like yeah. a nightclub bombing. And they're like, we're okay, we're okay. And I was like, what? <laughs> we're we're okay is yeah. like the scariest <laughs> right? text to get. I mean, it's, it's good news, but yeah, you're, and I was like, and I had no idea what was happening because like, because yeah. like there wasn't any news yet. And I walked into the school full of French people, and like I could tell some people had no idea, and some people had an idea, and like it was scary. And I just had no, I just didn't really know what was happening. I had my, I think my two year old in the car and my six year old in the mm -hmm. car, and I was trying like not to freak out and. My six-year-old, she was like, well, she was like, of course our family is okay. Like, I built a force field for everybody that we love, so, like, uh -huh. they're going to be okay. Yeah. And I was just like, I had to, like, just, like, not, like, sob right there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so that's so the breaking news is sort of, like, those feelings of, like, grown-ups trying to, like, 
hide stuff from the kids, but the kids can kind of tell anyway. And like the kids trying all this like magical thinking stuff to try to make things better. You mentioned in your path, all of these moments, and it kind of relates to how we know each other, all of these moments where you just kind of showed up for events where you could, I hate the word networking, but like where you could build your community of artists and make contacts and stuff. Does that come naturally to you or is it a challenge? It looks natural from the outside. Like okay. I, I remember you <laughs> showing up because it was funny when I ran Animatic Boston, I was one of the people in charge of it. I talked about this, I think on this podcast before, but like that's easier than showing up because I have control over the situation. And I was always envious of the people like you, who I think I think often you came just by yourself, ready to chat with people, smiling face, and like having this thought in my head of like, I would not be, I would be at home like, or I would be asking my friend if they would come with me. And then if they said no, I'd be like, oh, I'll go next month. That all brings me to like, does it come naturally <laughs> to you? Or what, or what sort of challenge is that for you to get to that point? Yeah, I can make plans for myself like a month ahead. And then when it comes close, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do uh-huh. this thing. Like, yeah. why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I have a lot of social anxiety. But I think at that time, especially, like, I didn't have any professional contacts. I didn't have any, like, coworkers before I did the program online. I had been working at the Museum of Science where I knew half the staff at the museum. Yeah. So I could just, if I went to get coffee, I could just, like, do stupid small talk or, like, ask people about, like, the projects. And I was helping them because I was helping them find interns and I was helping them with other things. So I felt like I had a reason to talk to them. So it was hard for me to go to Animatic because I felt so awkward. And I remember, like, having business cards in my pocket and being like, am I supposed to get business cards yeah. to people? <laughs> and it's funny because, like, I remember once there was a group of students that came. Okay, and they I had, think I'm thinking about the same yeah, people. Yeah, and ahead. then they they had, and then there was one kid who just went around and just handed a business card to every, and I, and I was like, man, I, I know where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I have that feeling too, and like. It was so yeah. pure. I was just about yes. to tell that same anecdote. Yes. I remember, I think it was three students, yeah. and, but yeah, one of them would just walk up, be like, here you go, and then like walk away, and yeah. I, think, I think his business card didn't even have like a website or anything. <laughs> and I actually found out, I have yeah. some information on this anecdote. I'm friends with their animation teacher. I guess their assignment was to go to Animatic Boston and hand out at least three business cards. (laughs) And the implication was they were supposed to like actually meet people. (laughs) Technicality, you know? He's like, I'm doing what it says to do. Which it is kind of what you have to do, but you also have to, you know, have some kind of a conversation, which is hard and exhausting. But I just want to say just in terms of the animatic thing and like how you ran it and pulled it together, I know with help too, but like I always sort of, you know, you were always there and like, I was just so thankful that you were doing this thing to pull the community together to interact with other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really lovely. And I think like, and I've noticed other things you do too, like when you worked on your film, like you had a bunch of different people come in and like you you asked me to do like a little part of it. Like, right? Yeah, I, love, I love that part. I mean, I loved, I just love being part of it. Like it was so fun. And like you had, you brought in a bunch of different people and like brought them together. And now you're doing this podcast. That's a really lovely thing to pull people together and, um, Thank you. Thank you. Definitely <laughs> leaving this in. Um, and on the flip side, like that stuff doesn't work without the people like you who show up and like who are regulars. I loved everyone who showed up for that. I was happy when someone showed up to just one that they were interested in, got something out of it. But like it was really special to have sort of like the faces of Animatic Boston. Getting into your creative process, you've I feel like you've kind of hinted at this a little. Are you a perfectionist? I hate perfectionism because I feel like it stops me from doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think I also want things to be perfect. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I guess you could say I'm still struggling with it. (laughs) In that struggle, what are some of the victories? Oh, for a couple of years, I did 100-day projects. 
And I think those were really good for me. There was an artist on Instagram. I haven't even really been on Instagram recently. But I was really active in like 2015, <laughs> 20, like right when I graduated and mm-hmm. had no work. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidence. There was an artist named El Luna who was like hosting 100 days, the 100 day project like on Instagram. Everybody would start at the same time or ish. Mm-hmm. And then you would tag that. And then it sort of felt like a community. I, I feel yeah. like I made some online friends that way. The first thing I did for the first two years was 100 days of drawing on photos. So I'd take like a photograph. I remember that. Those were yeah. so cool. They were really fun. And like, since I was trying to do it every day and I try not to beat myself up over it if I didn't do it. But like if I had, you know, one day and like I really liked the drawing that I made and I posted, good, I'm going to do it again the next day. Yeah. And if I had a drawing that I was like, oh, this isn't great, but I just have to get something up. It's okay. I'm going to do another one the next day. Right. And so I feel like it's that just sort of like, okay, we're just going to keep going. And we're not yeah. going to like stop ourselves because either because we've made the most perfect thing ever and we can't ever top it or we're so terrible and horrible that like we don't deserve to draw or something like we're trying to stay in between those two things it's true that like having consistency or even just putting like the more work you do as an artist the more it doesn't matter if everything's perfect whether it's because you have to for a client right i I feel like it's easier when it's for me at least like when i have something under contract i'm like Mm -hmm. well the art director has a deadline and i'm really i'm like a very like rule follower so i feel like if there's a deadline, I'm like, okay, I work backwards from it. I'm so dorky. I, <laughs> When I finished my animation program, I had had like a production spreadsheet to finish my film, my three and a half minute film. I said to my mentor, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do without my production schedule because I need it like to survive. And he was like, well, just make a production schedule for your life. So like I have and like, it's, and I don't track like down to the minute or anything, but like I chunk out, okay, what did I accomplish today? And like, what category does it go in? And like that way I feel like, Something's getting done. I'm doing something. Right. If, if I if I think last month I did nothing, I was it's not true. I can look and I you know I read books and I spent such so like approximately so many hours on emails and I did project work or whatever. And so I feel like doing that kind of thing sort of helps. I'm curious what format yours is in. So is it is it like a spreadsheet a production? Spreadsheet. And and by the way, I'm right there with you. Like this notebook. Yeah. Most pages are just planning stuff or yeah. planning time. Yeah. And I always wish my notebooks could be like sketchbooks. And I'm like, <laughs> nope, they're just to-do lists. Yeah. <laughs> so do you do most of your planning in the notebook? Yeah. I mean, well, I have a calendar. I have a to-do list app that has subcategories for like every project but when i'm thinking about like the week and the day that's when i use the notebook right yeah high five i actually (laughs) do the same thing i have so i have i have a spreadsheet that's a month and it's flexible right yeah it's more for ballpark okay i should get this thing done this month and then i'll write down like on a page what i sort of want to get done this week and then i have a post-it note for like today because yeah. I, I used to have a page and then I would put too many things and I'd feel bad that I didn't do everything. <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. if I can fit in a post-it note, it's likely it's going to get done. And if it doesn't, then I cross it off. If it really didn't matter, then it just never goes anywhere. Or I cross it off and I write it on the new one. And then each month I dump that month's spreadsheet onto like a spreadsheet for the year. So I don't have to look at like a whole year's worth every time I, I look see. at it. Are you then going back through like, and it sounds like you hinted at this, looking at what you did? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> sometimes, what, not too much. <laughs> what do you get out of that ritual when you do it? I feel like sometimes, uh, right now I'm working on helping to plan this, um, a conference for published authors and illustrators that's been running for a while called Kindling Words. And I spent a lot of time on it. And since I tracked my time, I was able to see like how much and what percentage of my time and it's mm. too much. And so I realized like I need to scale back. At the end of 2022, I spent 
20% of my time working on this, 20% right. of my working hours that I logged on this. And like, that is not the proportion that I want. So like, it helped me think about this year and think about, you know, how much do I, do I want to step back entirely? Do I want to step back somewhat? What combination do I need to do for my sanity? I think initially I started doing it because I didn't know how long it would take me to do animation freelance work. Right. And I was realizing- <laughs> The answer I, is always too long. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> So I, I share that I am, and I mean this in a good way, like a weirdo who writes everything down. <laughs> and I think because of that, people perceive me as like really organized. Like I have my like shit together mentally. <laughs> and like, if you opened the door into my brain, it would be like chaos. So I'm curious, does your, I won't call you a weirdo, but does your... Oh no, I, I totally am. No, I love writing things down. Yeah. I actually wish I'd brought some of my notes. <laughs> We, yeah, we can give them Because I feel like I don't... Yeah. But yeah, do you think that part of you comes from internally deep in your soul? Do you feel like an organized person or do you feel like a disorganized person? Those aren't the only two options, but do you feel like... <laughs> like I feel like I'm a very disorganized person internally and all of the writing down and stuff I do is to like rein that in. Yeah, but the writing down that you do is a way of organizing. Right. And I think that the more you sort of try to wrangle it, and organize stuff, then like the more stuff you can maybe do, which then yeah. makes you feel crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and no. by you, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, tell me more about what you mean by that. Well, I guess I, I feel like I feel like if you organize stuff and you mm -hmm. plan stuff and you try to lay it all out, then like you realize like what you might be able to do. So then you fit more things in. <laughs> and you try to get more things, you know, yeah. and, and I feel like it's sort of like a vicious cycle of, mm -hmm. I do think I'm an organized person to a certain extent, but also I feel like a lot of times like I'm going crazy and like there's like little bits of stuff from my brain like flying out all the time. Yep. Or like I feel frazzled, like I go pick my kids up from school and like I just feel like the most frazzled mom, you know, my internal image is not this what external people <laughs> see. Yeah, I did write something down from your Instagram that I loved. <laughs> oh, wait. I haven't posted on Instagram in so long. Well, I, I really love your Instagram in general because I love all the challenges you do. I feel like I've learned a lot about you over the years from your Instagram and you post a lot of art. But you had a, a drawing of a chocolate bar. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> you had written um, that, and I might butcher this a little, but time is like a chocolate bar. It's delicious. There's never enough. And if you try to neatly chop it up, it like shatters into yeah. a million pieces and makes a mess. Right. I just really liked that. I, I feel like that was a thing that I just used to like think about all the time. Mm -hmm. I would have like childcare coverage for my kids and I'd be like, okay, I have a full nine to five day, like a regular working person. <laughs> and then like my mom would be like, ooh, um, Coralie, my youngest daughter, like forgot her such and such. Like, can you just come drop it off? Yeah. And I'd be like, yes, but no. <laughs> like, right. And I was like, but yes, because like my mom's providing childcare and like, and yeah. of course, and she needs this thing. And also yeah. like, like she wants her lovies, right? Like she has these stuffed animals. And I'm like, <laughs> I know how sad she's going to be without yeah. them. And yet like, I know that like, if I take the 15 minutes, which is nothing to go over to my mom's house and drop it off, I'm going to come back and like, I won't have any focus. Right. And, ugh, but if you shatter a chocolate bar all over the place, like, those tiny little pieces are still delicious. They're really good. <laughs> so, you can put them in a cookie. Yeah. Like, but I also you... feel like my cat stuff on them and they smear them across the counter. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> like, it kind of brings me into something I want to ask about. So I've had now a handful of people on who are parents and, like, very selfishly I'm always asking about it because I'm at a stage in my life where I'm hoping to have kids, like, within the next year or so. And I have so much excitement about that. And... Fears around it that are like 
probably like pretty cliche fears. So I've been I've been asking like all of the the dads and moms who've been on the podcast about this. And my question is, I'm also like, it's always interesting to know just like, how do you balance it? Work-life balance. But like what I'm actually more in. (laughs) You don't. (laughs) Right. See, that's that's usually the answer. But what I'm actually more interested in, because maybe this taps into fears I have, you are someone who still very much as an artist and a career person, you have big goals and ambitions for yourself that you've been following. And so I'm always curious how how you feel you prioritize yourself at a stage in your life where you have to prioritize other people. Mm -hmm. And I've actually on the podcast mostly talked to dads about this. And um, it's not necessarily fair that this is true, but I feel like that's even more fraught for moms. Mm. How do you sort of chase your own goals that are for you, Sarah's goals, Sarah's ambitions, honor that ambitious part of yourself while also prioritizing others? Yeah, good question. (laughs) (laughs) I think it varies and changes a lot over time. You know, for me personally, like I really started being more creative professionally and personally, like after my kids were born. Right. Like I think I sort of like had myself in a box before being like, I can't do art, have to do a thing that makes more money. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like with the moms versus dad things, especially in the beginning, like I think I didn't realize the physicality of motherhood. Like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I grew up in the 80s. I feel like it was like, oh, yeah, of course, you can, like, be a working mom and, like, have a kid. And, like, it's fine. Like, that's just, like, normal. And, like, my my mom always worked. Her mom always worked. Like, it's just like, oh, you just do that. And then I didn't realize, oh, like, someone has to watch the baby all the time. (laughs) And also, like, my body will be making food for the baby for the foreseeable future. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) While I'm healing from the trauma of the baby leaving my body. I mean, I knew about that stuff, but I didn't really know about it. You know, like, getting peed on at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning and then you know, feeling so tired that you feel like you're drunk and you're like, who gave me this baby? Like, why would they let me do this? And yet, like, you're you're the parent. Right. (laughs) You were asking about, like, how how you sort of balance personal goals with... Yeah, like, honoring your own personal ambitions. And I don't think this is a bad thing, but, like, our creative ambitions, yes, of course, like, we want to succeed because that helps our families too, but our creative ambitions are about us in a sense. Like, they're about what we... How we want to feel whole. Right. Well, and I think that that's the kind of example that I want to set for my kids. And Mm. I think that's one of the main reasons I went back to school, too, is, like, not only, like, in thinking about Ben, did I think, well, you know, I don't know how much, who knows how long you get to live. (laughs) Like, you should probably try to do something that you enjoy now because you just can't bank on having X amount of time after you do something else. Yeah. Um, And also, I had Miriam, my older daughter, and, you know, I just, I wanted her to see that, like, I didn't hate my job. I mean, she sees me go crazy over things now, but like, it's a different thing, I hope. (laughs) You know, I think about my own dad who like, I know he always wanted to draw and like he stopped Mm -hmm. drawing and like, I think he always regretted that. And when he retired, he did do some art related stuff for sure. But like it, he wasn't really able to get back into, I think the thing that he had wanted to do when he was younger. And so when I realized I was able to do that, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try it and yeah. see how it goes. And and then each time I feel like it's not working, I'm like, all right, I'll give myself a year and we'll see if I can't, you know, hit these such and such goals or close to them, then like I'll go and like get an HR job or something and like right. knock on wood, like it's been working out. But I think that it's, I think it's important to try to find something that like brings you joy. And even if it's clearly it's not going to bring you joy every moment of the day. I remember when your book, The Breaking News came out, I went to like a book reading event and I think your kids were there. And I I don't have many specific memories about them, but I'm curious because I know from growing up what your parents do is so normal 
to you. Yeah. I'm curious for them, and maybe this is a question only they can answer in <laughs> 20 years when I have them on the podcast, because it'll <laughs> still be going, right? But for them, what you do is is so connected with their world. Because when you're a kid, yeah. books are like a deep part of your universe. So yeah. I'm curious if you have any like observations around that. I mean, my kids are getting older now. If you remember them at the event, like they were little. I was yeah. like, holding, and like, so they're nine and 13 now. Oh, wow. My 13 year old is like, she looks like she's 16. She's like <laughs> almost, she's almost as tall as me. She's technically not taller than me yet. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I think she remembers me working somewhere else. I don't even know if she remembers me working somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I remember once feeling like really cruddy about something about the work I was working on. And she said to me, this is maybe like four or five years ago, Miriam said, if I could draw every day for work, like that would be so amazing. And I would love to do that. And I'm like, yeah, kid, we'll just try. (laughs) But like, but then I was like, careful what you wish for. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was like, she's right. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. And like, I forget that a lot. And I have to always remind myself that. And um, kind of cool to have an actual child to represent (laughs) your inner child. Because I always have to just ask eight-year-old me and (laughs) and be like, oh, he wanted to draw every day for work. (laughs) You have an embodiment of that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Don't ask them now. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, stop drawing. (laughs) Dance K-pop all the time. (laughs) We wish you were a K-pop artist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because like as they get older, because I really started looking at picture books again when my kids were little, and now they're out of the picture book range, really. I'm starting to worry. I'm like, am I not going to have younger kid ideas now? I, I don't. I think that's probably just me being too worried about things. <laughs> and like, I don't need to be. But, um, you know, I think a lot of my book ideas came from conversations that I had with them. Yeah. And I think like when you were asking about, you know, balancing your professional goals with like family goals type things. And yeah. I, I think like what's really interesting for me is that the things that I was worried about with having kids, I guess I feel like you can't, you can't really know what to be worried about. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like very hard because I think I especially, I used to be the kind of person who was like, well, if I just plan for every contingency, then like I can find a way out kind of thing. Yeah, get out of my head. <laughs> yeah. I'm always, I always have this underlying feeling that if I just like figure out a schedule and like how I think about everything, I'll be sort of like bulletproof to like what life throws at me. I always think I'm just falling short of like anticipating everything. Yeah. And I think if I can anticipate everything, then I can prevent bad things from happening, mm-hmm. which is yeah. like clearly not true. And like the bad things that have happened, like were completely out of my control. And so that's something I've worked on in therapy. <laughs> and like, I think like one kind of mantra that I had for a while that I worked with my therapist was like, instead of obsessively trying to guess all the bad things that were going to happen in the future so that I could fix them before they happened, I would say to myself, I'm capable of dealing with problems as they occur. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like when I get to that bridge, I will cross it if I can, or if I can't cross it, I will pick something out then. Like just have to trust future Sarah, which is a challenge. But I think with kids, my experience with kids at least, is that things that I thought I should be prepared for, like wasn't really worth all the worry mm-hmm. for those things. And then the things that happen, don't know how I could have prepared for those things. Right. And then you'll find that like the way that you approach your creative work changes because there's this like human, this like different person one thing I like a lot about my kids is that like they have a sense of humor that's very tailored to my sense of humor (laughs) and yet they come up with things that like I never would say right Um, you know man and toddlers man like they just they're just a whole nother species yeah themselves and you're just like where did you come up with that and this is a person who like didn't know how to talk a year ago and now it's like it's bonkers so I think that it's good to be around kids however you can be around kids and just sort of like absorb their craziness 
and then let it affect your creativity. I love that. Let's jump into our lightning round, if you're ready. What is something you learned the hard way that you'd be happy for others to just learn the easy way, possibly by just hearing you tell them the easy way? Mm. I think probably like learning to advocate for myself. Mm. Took me a really long time. Like I think when I was an undergrad, like if I needed help on an assignment or something and the professor was like, we have these office hours and you can come to them and talk to us. I'd be like, no, <laughs> not doing that because I'm scared. And yeah. what if I say the wrong thing and look stupid and I don't want you to think I'm stupid. So I'll just struggle through it and figure something out on my own. I feel like that's, I'm always trying to like get my kids to, to advocate for themselves. Cause it's, if you have a feeling like you need help with something, it's good to ask for help yeah. from people in positions of authority, like a professor, but also from like, you know, other people, you know, I think sometimes that's how you get closer to people too. You know, yeah. If you're not like being totally burdensome. <laughs> right. And then what is something you learned the hard way that you feel there was no better way for you to learn that? You couldn't have learned it the easy way. You had to go through it. I mean, I think just like any kind of failure, just that like failure is such a part of any creative process. If someone says like, just tells you that you have to fail. I don't think you really feel it mm-hmm. until you do it yourself and then like get through all of those feelings. Then maybe later you can realize, okay, maybe that thing wasn't like a complete and utter total failure disaster, but maybe it was like a stepping stone to this other thing. Or maybe it yeah. was like, you know, a good thing for me to realize that's not what I want to do and I want to do this thing instead. But like you have to go through that and like mess stuff up. And, and I've Messed up a lot of things. Yeah. It kind of comes back to perfectionism. I guess rejection and failure aren't the exact same things, but I imagine because you're in the world of publishing that there's Mm -hmm. a lot of rejection involved, right? Yeah. And does that often feel like failure, even though it's not technically the same thing? Yeah, it can. Actually, what's interesting is like my, an admin job that I had at the Museum of Science running the internship program was really good practice for me because I also ran the youth volunteer program where like mm. high school students would apply to volunteer in the summer and we only had a limited number of spots just because we had to have enough supervisors for them to like actually be doing something interesting and so we'd have like I don't know 200 kids apply and yeah. 100 kids would get a spot the kids would come in for interviews but then I had to tell like 100 kids that they didn't get wow. a volunteer position yeah you know for like 90 percent of those kids who didn't get a position like some of the kids like were just doing it because their parents told them to do it and like yeah. they clearly weren't interested but the rest of the kids were like they were great kids they would have made great volunteers they yeah. were great and I could see like it was not anything personal it's just a numbers game yeah in seeing that so many times and just, you know, trying to explain it to them, but like still seeing that they were here. I had called them on the phone to tell oh, them. God. Of course. It sucks. But then also just like being like being on the side of like getting all these resumes and just being like, oh, like there was nothing wrong with this person. Yeah. This person feels now feels like there's something wrong with them and there's not. Yeah. And I, so I feel like when my books are rejected, you know, you when you write a book, ideally you're trying to put some part of your heart and your soul into the right, project. Right. Like so that so that someone else can feel that. Cause I feel like yeah. that's what other writers and illustrators and creators have done for me, right? Yeah. Like they put something in and the thing that they're communicating isn't necessarily exactly the thing that I'm getting out of it, but like there's something really meaningful that's coming through. Yeah. My mom is a songwriter. She writes um, country music oh, lyrics. Cool. That's awesome. It's really awesome. She's done it for years. She always talks about critiques. She's like, she's like, yeah, just she, you just like take all your guts out, spread them out on the table, and then everybody like tells you like how terrible they are. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And and I feel like, and I'm kind yeah. of just like, I guess the experience of seeing all those resumes gives me a step back, and I can be like, they don't hate my intestines, right? <laughs> like, they just need a different yeah, kind that's of. That's gonna be the episode title. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I love. I really love that. I actually have a book that hasn't been announced yet. 
that is actually probably the closest book to my heart that I've mm-hmm. written. Like, and it's been rejected the most out of any 27 times it's been rejected. And usually my agent doesn't even send things out that many times because she's like, if it's getting rejected this many times, like maybe we need to like make some changes yeah, before yeah. we send it out again. But she was like, this book just needs to find the right home because it's a quiet book. Like a lot of the times you get feedback where someone says, I just didn't fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know that person. Like, yeah. how, how could I make them fall in love with it? The only thing I can do is for me to try to fall in love with it if I can. And hopefully that'll come through and connect with somebody. And I can't take it personally if like this other person didn't fall in love with it. And then last lightning round question. What is a favorite thing to do that has nothing to do with writing, illustrating? During the pandemic, we started, I started like forcing my family to go out on nature walks. Oh, nice. I would just like look for like patches of green on the map. And I'm like, we're going to that one today. (laughs) And we connected with a group called Earthwise Aware that goes to the fells. I Um, love the fells. Yeah. This group goes on like guided tours once a month or twice a month or something where they're documenting different plants and mm-hmm. organisms that they see. Like a new nerdy thing that I started doing was going and taking photographs and using these like plant identification, insect identification apps to like log these things so that theoretically like there it can be used as scientific data. I also start to recognize plants and like I didn't know like the difference between an oak and a maple when I was growing up. Right. And like when I know a species name, I sort of feel like, oh, I know you. Like, <laughs> I never heard it put that way, but that's so true. There was this great Radiolab episode. Do you know that podcast? Yeah. The one about colors from like a long time ago. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What you're about to say is so interesting. <laughs> well, just that like they were positing on the show that like before people could make certain colors, there weren't words for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes having a word for something makes it so that you can see the thing. Is that what you thought I was going to yeah, say? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, it's how we perceive color. It's relatively recent that people have defined blue as a separate color and not just like a shade of either like green or purple. Right. And that changes how people see blue. Right. Which is which is That you can identify wild. it. Yeah. And I feel that way if I'm like walking through my neighborhood and I'm like, oh, there's like a little yellow flower or whatever. And I, like, I look at it closely. I'm like, hmm, this is, like, very cool. Like, I've never seen this flower before. And I look it up in my plant app, and I'm like, oh, it's um, butter and eggs is one really cute little yellow oh, flower. Oh, wow. Butter and eggs. It's also called toadwort. No, that <laughs> might be something different. But it has, it has like, a silly, ridiculous yeah. other name. But it's butter and eggs. And then I walk my dog, and it's everywhere. Like, I didn't see it. I couldn't see it before, before I knew the name of it. And once I know the name of plants, I see them everywhere. Yeah. I don't see a lot of people during my day. <laughs> so I get to say hi to Toadwort. I love that answer. And <laughs> last but not least, if people want to learn more about you or if people want to purchase your books, which are out in the world, how can people find out more about you and your books? Yeah. My website is ruler.com, R E U L E R.com. And there's information on my books there, but um, you can buy my books anywhere you like to buy books, hopefully at your indie bookstore, your local nice. indie bookstore. All right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. It's great to see you again after seeing you so many times at <laughs> Animatic Boston. It's so nice to be able to catch up. And I love having a podcast yes. for an excuse to do that. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Awesome. All right, that was my conversation with Sarah Lynn Rule. I hope you loved hearing it. Please like and subscribe and share and tweet and review and rate and all the good stuff. Keep sharing the little animations. Those actually are getting a lot of 
views, especially on Instagram. And I think that's because all of you have been sharing them. And that's been in turn bringing new listeners to the podcast. So that's super helpful to me. They're fun, little bite-sized things that will make you laugh, inspire you. I think they're pretty shareable. So if you think people will enjoy them on your story, on your feed, don't hesitate to click that little uh, paper airplane. Sarah mentioned this, her books are out in the stores and they're really good. So if you have kids in your life who want gifts or who love to read, check out The Breaking News, Ali Along, Bobby and Rivka's Best Ever Chala So Far, NERP, Farm the Farm, and Pet the Pets. They're all really joyful and fun and Sarah's writing and illustrations are really inventive and varied and cool and I think you're gonna love them. Speaking of stuff our guests made, Two weeks ago, I chatted with Yoni Gordon, a musician. It was an awesome episode. I hope you go back and listen if you haven't yet. But I wanted to remind everyone that his album comes out in a couple of days on February 17th. So check that out wherever you listen to music. Yoni Gordon and the album is called Courtship. This episode was recorded at CCTV in Cambridge. Thank you so much to the team there. It was mixed by my brother, Adam Salzberg, and he helped get it to your ears. The theme music is by Typist, Adam Solo Project. I already recommended the Yoni episode, but I'm also trying to get in the habit of recommending other episodes. So if this is your first episode and you loved it and you want to go back and listen to other ones, I think you'll really like the Angela Ensminger episode. Angela also talks about going to grad school and making a career change and the decisions around that. And you might also like the Anthony Marquette episode uh, for some of the same themes around parenthood and prioritizing work and family and, and figuring all of that out. All right, that's all. If you're listening on the day this came out, happy Valentine's Day. I hope this conversation feels like a nice Valentine for your creative soul. I, I don't know. Um, enjoy your day. <laughs>